no time you spend writing, no time you spent creating, no time you spend, you know, practicing anything is sort of wasted time. That it all it all adds up. It all makes you better. Like the the novels that I've I've written that didn't turn out, like made me capable of writing the novels that did, right? Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with novelist Matt Bell, whose new book, Refuse to be Done, is a practical and common sense guide to writing a novel, which takes readers from the challenge of getting the first draft onto the page to the just as vital task of persistently revising it until it finds its best form. Though it's technically about writing fiction, the book's advice can apply to most any long-form narrative or creative endeavor, as our conversation reveals. Together, Matt and I talk about creative persistence and how the most important part of the writing process tends to be rewriting. We talk about how the research you do after your first draft is done is as vital to the story as the research you do before the project begins. We talk about how keeping a spreadsheet of your daily progress is a curiously effective way of holding yourself accountable to your writing goals. Matt and I dig deep into the idea of writing craft and the importance of creating an inciting incident and tension and character change in your narrative. We talk about how the best point of view from which to tell a story isn't necessarily obvious at first and why telling a story chronologically can often take away from its narrative power. We start by talking about the effort that differentiates good from great when writing something like a novel. Let's listen in. So Matt, your book about writing is called Refuse to be Done. Why did you call it Refuse to be Done and not something like How to Write a Novel or Novel Writing Explained? Right. <laughs> um, you know, well, I mean, of course, there's the tradition of nonfiction books with pithy titles and long subtitles, which I was glad to be a part of as well. Um, but, you know, I think it, it really did come from the book itself. And uh, and this phase for me late in the process where I, I sort of know the book is good enough that I could send it to my agent or I could send it to my editor and it would be readable. It would probably be publishable. It, you know, it's sort of a, an enjoyable thing. Um, but I think there's always this like last phase of work that if you just stay in it, that's your opportunity to go from like good to great, you know? And I, I really, for me in the book, there's a couple of things that are part of that process for me, but it's really trying to push past that first place of like, good enough, you know, uh, and into something else that that might be farther. Um, and I think that actually ends up being a really interesting part of the sort of creative process for me. It's, you know, it's that part where you're tired and you're kind of ready to maybe step away. Um, but there's a big last leap of sort of quality that happens there. Um, and I really believe that your friends are only going to look at your project so many times that your editor and your agent are only going to look at your book so many times and that the, the better I can deliver it, the farther I can go with their help. Um, so it's really uh, the refuse to be done idea for me is really about that last, last stage of sort of revision uh, and rewriting where you, uh, yeah, hopefully get into kind of a, a space beyond what you thought was possible. And and it does seem to happen for me with novels. And it, and it feels like this can, can apply to all sorts of creative endeavors. And I like that you talk about showing it to your friends because – there is a there is a limited amount of time that friends have for for our own creative endeavors, and so in a way, correct me if I'm wrong, but refuse to be done is like just holding yourself to a certain kind of, if not excellence, just sort of persistence until you create the best thing you can possibly do before you show it to anyone. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, I love. I mean, persistence seems like the right word, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I just did a, an event with a friend, Kirsten Chan, who talked about. Um, her creative process almost entirely being about believing in her own tenacity. And I liked that a lot. That felt very recognizable to me that, you know, that your ability to persist or to be tenacious will get you through the process. Um, I, you know, I, I think part of it for me is I started novel writing right after grad school and I was a little workshopped out. Like I didn't really mm-hmm. want to talk to people about my work anymore. I didn't want people inside my process for a while. And I sort of developed a way to work on my, my own to go pretty far in the process before I, before I asked help. I obviously want outside help. I love being edited. I love people's help with the work. Um, but learning how to go as far as I could without needing sort of outside validation in the middle of the process was, a, I think, a big change. Um, and ends up being really important to me. You you talk early on about the idea of confirming to yourself, I am writing a novel, um, mm-hmm. and that sometimes people are sort of apologetic about their own creativity. So why is it important to affirm to yourself that you're actually writing a novel? 
Yeah, it seems like a hard thing to do by half measures, right? I mean, this goes to that persistence again. Like novel writing is hard. Writing a nonfiction book hard. Doing any kind of creative endeavor is, is difficult. Um, and if you sort of uh, don't give it a place of seriousness in your life or in your mind, uh, I think it's going to be hard to do. I think it's it's hard to do the work of writing a novel in a um, uh, way that doesn't give it that sort of status. Um, and it seems to me that uh, there's like the like nouns make us nervous. The like, am I a writer? Mm. Um, am I a journalist? Am I an artist? Like those things are, are seem to require like outside sort of validation. They can make us feel a little um, vulnerable in a certain way. But the verb part of it, like I'm writing a novel is something mm. like you're doing or you're not. And I think um, that's just up to you. You can choose to be writing. And it feels important to sort of just make that a choice in your life. Um, I don't know how this works for you, but I, I feel like I have a limited amount of like obsession space in my life hmm. and that novel writing, like uh, in the same way that like running marathons or something does fuels a little bit on obsession uh, and giving the novel I'm writing the space of, of obsession in my life is one of the ways it gets done. I think when it's second or third, it, it just struggles to get the attention from me that it should. Now, is this something that one should tell your is is this I am writing a novel is that something you tell yourself or your friends or both one reason why I ask is you know I've I've come up through a lot of creative communities over the course of my life and oftentimes mm -hmm. there are people who call themselves writers but they aren't actually writing <laughs> I think there's sort of a social aspect of sort of a performative aspect versus the actual work itself so uh wh where do you lie on the balance between telling other people about it versus just sort of encouraging yourself to do it yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said for like, you know, a public declaration of intent is sometimes good. It's a way, one of the kinds of ways of being accountable, right? Um, but of course, I agree that there are many, many writers who are not writing, right? Um, there's sort of, uh, yeah, there's an identity that feels pleasing in that way. Um, but I, I do think there's something to sort of claiming it in a way um, that is not, uh, it doesn't have to be performative, right? It can be a sort of declaration of intent. Um, when I, before I went to grad school, I was, I was managing restaurants and, um, and the first time I really learned to have like a writing practice where I was writing regularly, like five days a week, couple hours a day, you know, um, I had my work schedule like a month at a time and I started putting my writing schedule, like on that schedule. I'd be, you know, if I had to work from 5 PM to close, I would write from 11 to one or something. Right. Um, and my, my, because I put on the schedule and because I said like I was writing a novel at the time. Um, my wife took that seriously too. She'd sort of look at the schedule and be like, aren't you supposed to be writing right now? And I'm like, I am supposed to be writing right now. Um, and it was good, right? It sort of made it seem like it was something I had to do. That was part of my life as opposed to like a hobby I had that was taking time away from something else. Right. Um, and so I think there is something important about sometimes letting at least the people who are close to you know that, uh, nothing wrong with secret projects probably, uh, yeah. but they can be harder to carve out. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you also talk in, in the book about having a spreadsheet for yourself. And mm. I, I love the sort of the data nerd aspect of creativity. But uh, tell me about your strategy for creating a spreadsheet of your own work progress on a novel. Sure. Yeah, mine's actually on my screen right now. <laughs> cool. Um, I uh, uh, started doing this a long time ago. I think I actually did it. I wrote a Nano Remo novel in like 2004 or something, right? Tell us an what, incredibly long time ago. Tell us what it is. Some oh, of my yeah. listeners might not know what that is. Sure. Uh, NaNoWriMo is, is National Novel Writing Month. You try to write an entire novel during that time of at least 50,000 words. Hmm. Um, so you have to write quite a bit a day. I'm not sure I remember what the number exactly is, but I feel like it's like 1,800 words a day or something. Right. Uh, no, it must be more than that. Yeah, anyway, it's a lot. You write quite a bit. Um, and uh, so one of the ways I, I did that was I just made a spreadsheet and I sort of tracked how much I was writing every day um, and had a little formula so that um, if I fell behind, it told me what my new like daily goal was, right? It was always sort of self-adjusting. Uh, and I felt, found that to actually be a pretty great accountability tool for me. Um, I think the trick to it, I log, so I log every day I write now um, when I'm drafting a book. It's harder in revision, but when I'm drafting a book and I just put in how many words I wrote, uh, how many hours I worked, and then like a little note, like what I did that day, what I worked on, what I figured out, what I was thinking about, maybe what I'm reading. Um, and it does a couple things. Uh, one is I, I don't really like putting zeros in the spreadsheet, mm. so it encourages mm. me to get a little work done. Um, I think the real trick to it is you have to log the days you don't write, that that's the thing that actually makes it like a tool, that only logging the days you do write doesn't do the same work. Um, and it also lets me see the progress. 
You know, you write for a month on a book and you don't always feel like you've gotten very far, you know, especially in the early days when you're figuring out so much and being able to look back and see the effort I've done and to see the the sort of things I figured out in the comments makes me feel like I like I spent my month well, um, assuming I have. Uh, and I think that's been really great for me. So I, I don't always use it, but it is a tool that I use quite a bit. Um, the one I have right now, I think, um, uh, it sounds great. I can tell you I'm on my 267th day of this novel draft, right? Wow. You know? <laughs> um, but it's kind of cool to be able to sort of see that and to, you know, feel like you're doing something. Cause it's very easy for a year of novel writing to sort of be like, what do I have to show for it? Especially that first year, you know? One thing I talk about with my own nonfiction and travel writing students is the idea of not intimidating yourself too much. So I'm curious to know about how what exactly counts as progress, because sometimes, uh, e even for me, it, it's easier to write a few paragraphs on a yellow legal pad or a napkin and, and then just sort of to sort of uncork things a little bit. So as opposed to typing it officially on the computer, that feels like there's a little bit more pressure. I'm, after 25 years, I'm better at that now. Um, but do, do napkins count towards that word count or is that a, a sort of an ancillary a aspect of this process? in your spreadsheet. I think I, I think everything counts, right? I mean, that feels really good to me. Mostly what gets counted here for me is stuff I do at the computer. Um, so, you know, I, I do remember log hours if I'm writing by hand or something, but I don't mm -hmm. know the words, obviously, right? Um, I don't write by hand a lot because I have terrible, terrible handwriting um, that is, I basically would just be uh, brainstorming if I was writing by hand. I edit by hand, but um, so I don't write a ton of new drafting that way. Um, but of course, you know, in the editing process, there's lots of things that don't look like writing in the same way. Um, I do think that making it lower stakes is really important. I, I think a lot about low stakes writing as part of the process. Um, I know uh, Lauren Groff talks about the same thing you, you do. She can't write first drafts to the computer because then the pressure to make like the prose perfect gets in the way of like figuring out the story the first time through. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I think um, I think one of the things that keeps it low stakes for me, as, as I describe in the book, the sort of my rewriting process is I know I'm going to rewrite everything. I know everything's going to change. So the prose I'm writing in the first draft is not is not in any way final prose usually. Um, so I think that allows me to be a little freer. Uh, it took me a long time to learn, too, that uh, that I can't do everything well at once the first time, um, for instance, Anywhere where uh, I always think of it as like turning the scene wheel, like where, where a plot thing has to like really happen in a scene. Like this is one of the big moments. My sentences just kind of fall apart. Like I can't write great prose hmm. and manage all the like blocking and the staging at the same time. It just doesn't happen for me. Um, similar writing first drafts of dialogue when, you know, I have two or three people talking in distinct voices and I can't I can't do that and write the action around it at the same time. So there is a little bit of like letting one thing be loose so you can work on something else for a little bit that I probably similar for you. If there's a little instinctual, like you learn what's right for you to do and what you have to put pressure on to get anything interesting to happen. Um, but I, I think I get better at knowing when to let something, uh, yeah, not be sort of nailed down. I think a lot about Ikea furniture, you know, when you put together a piece of Ikea furniture and you don't tighten all the screws until like the last second right. and you have this like super shaky table for like the whole time you're making it. Um, like my novels are like the screws are loose for a long, long time. And I think, uh, learning to be okay with that has been part of the process too. It feels like sometimes that early on we're giving ourselves something to revise. And I think people who are early to this yeah. creative process, they don't like the idea of that. They like the idea of the muse whispering to them from the, the, the mountain when in fact we have to, well, it's Anne Lamott's famous phrase, getting your shitty first draft on the page. Yeah. Um, which which I invite you to talk about because some of my listeners may not have heard of that. But to bring in another writer, have you heard of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's idea of super versus basher writers? No, I'd love to hear that. Well, he says that uh, there's he, he says there's two kind of writers, and I'm sure he's oversimplifying it. But um, that swoopers <laughs> go through and they'll write the whole thing and they'll go back and they'll revise like you know 97 times whereas a basher will write one sentence and they the sentence isn't quite right and they'll revise it several times before they go to the next sentence and that by the end of the paragraph um they've rewritten every sentence several times um that appealed to me because i'm a basher i'm just not a fast writer but by the time i'm done mm -hmm. uh, i usually get it out pretty good whereas i know people and i want to respect them creatively especially if they're my students that they are swoopers they don't they yeah. they're they're 
completely happy writing that shitty first draft and then rewriting it incomplete as opposed to one sentence at a time. So keeping in mind shitty first drafts and swoopers versus bashers, I'm I'm curious to know how you think about this and getting that first draft on page. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, in that formation, I'm probably a swooper, right? In the first mm-hmm. draft where uh, I, I think of first drafts as like very exploratory. I sort of let myself go off in different directions and sort of figure things out. And I don't tend to have much of an outline when I start. I might have, a, I have some like, way stations that I can see or something, right? But not really the whole plot figured out. And so I, I do write a lot of stuff that won't end up being in the book. Um, I think uh, uh, there's sort of two parts to me. I think I maybe this is the thing about the shitty first drafts thing I didn't really understand when I first read that. You know, the the first draft, as you said, gives you something to revise. For me, it's where I discover the story. I figure who the characters are. It's really a way of, like, thinking. You know, I'm sort of doing the kind of thinking some people do before they ever start writing, where it's all in their head and then they start it and they can try to write these sort of perfect or revised sentences as they go. I think I'm doing all that kind of thinking by writing. Um, And then in a second draft, I am now doing like basher stuff where I don't skip things. I stay with the chapter till it's as good as I can get it or, you know, it's 95 percent of the way there in that loose screws kind of way. Um, And. And I think then it's like a different process. In some ways, I think I do both. Hmm. Uh, first draft is very much in the sort of swooper form uh, where I, I, yeah, let things be loose. I'm definitely revising some, but really I'm, I'm letting things even not match. You know, like sometimes I know in the novel draft I'm writing now, I made changes to like a conception of a character like halfway through. But I didn't go back and revise the other, the hmm. earlier scenes yet. I'm just like imagining that I've already done it. Um, and so all that has to be fixed in the next draft. But when I'm doing that next draft, I won't go on until I think each chapter is like right. Um, and so it maybe is learning how to like when to do what. Hmm. Uh, but I think you're right that people first starting out, like the idea, the idea that you would have to rewrite a book after writing a book is uh, is pretty frustrating sounding. Um, but I, I think I just get less precious about a lot of that stuff over time. And precious seems that's maybe being a little dismissive, but uh, because I know I'm going to rewrite and because I know the rewriting is going to make it so much better. I don't think of it as like waste. It's not lost to do to do the rewriting and revision. It's it's just part of the process. Um, it's not a sign of failure that you have to revise. It's you know it's a sign of you doing things correctly. Uh, whether you do it as you go as you do, or you do it in like sort of bigger sort of uh, passes as I might. Well, I like the idea of splitting the difference. In a way, we need to give ourselves permission to be swoopers in the first draft and then the discipline to be bashers in every draft that comes after mm-hmm. it. I think um, I've, I've heard the analogy that. Many beginning writers think that the first draft is the party and the re- subsequent drafts are the cleaning up after the party when the first draft is sort of preparing for the right. party and then the party itself happens in the subsequent drafts. I, I like the idea. You, I think you use the word way of thinking because I think sometimes and this happens. I'm curious to know what you think in fiction. It happens a ton in nonfiction, even like a travel story where you're specifically writing about something that happened. Um, you're, you spend so much time planning because you think that that is important, but in a way, writing is its own way of thinking. And, and you're going to be in the story that basically preparing, again, preparing for the party and the party itself is a different way. And that I, I, I don't think writers should, um, should overplan that they should give themselves to get in and get messy from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about it like in, in the sense of a novel of allowing yourself to be surprised. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be, I mean, that's always what people say about, like, if you write this whole outline in advance, then you won't be surprised as you write. Although, of course, my experience, probably the same in nonfiction, is that the outline also contains a lot of room for surprise. But mm. um, I, I think there is a real sense of discovery in first drafts for me. Uh, one of the things that, so, you know, there's like the Hemingway, uh, when you read a story, you're only, you only see like 10% of the iceberg, right? Like you're just mm. supposed to, everything else is like subtext or submerged and you sort of intuit it. I think when I was younger and I heard that, I thought you were just supposed to be like a genius who had like, like somehow knew how to like suggest the 90% of the iceberg you don't actually leave on the page. Right. And I think my actual experience is that you make the whole iceberg. Um, and then you hide most of it or you take it out or you remove it so the reader can sort of do that same work. Um, I write so I, I actually try to think leave as little backstory in a final draft as I can. But I write a lot of backstory. Right. Like I'm discovering the character. I'm building their memories I'm learning who they are. Um, 
in doing something with more world building, like in my kind of science fiction work, um, I, I'm writing a lot about the world, but I, most of it comes out, right? It's just like what the, it's making what the characters know. It's making their knowledge. Uh, and I think it took me a long time to sort of realize that that was one of the ways you build a character. It's not like you, you do have, for me at least, I have to write it out. I have to, I have to put it on the page. I have to think about it that way. Um, but then uh, you remove as much of it as you can so that the reader can sort of have their own experience and so that the characters feel just sort of immersed in this world as opposed to the reader being told about it. Uh, I think there's something similar with research for me. Um, we could talk a lot about research probably, which probably crosses over with, with uh, things your audience wants to hear. Um, but the research I do before I start obviously has its own uses. But the research I do once I have a draft or part of a draft uh, I always think of the book as having its own form of attention. And when you go to like you do in person travel, um, like my second novel takes place in Detroit, which I was, you know, grew up in Michigan and was pretty familiar with. But some of the specific places in the book I had not been to. And I went after I was two drafts into the book and it was like visiting a dream I'd had. And also the novel knew exactly what it wanted to look at. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like, I'm interested in that and I'm interested in that. And this goes in the book because I had worked on it long enough to make it like a way of seeing the world. Um, and that's really an interesting sort of place to get to that for me doesn't really have, I can't start there. I only know that once I've made a significant amount of the book, am I able to sort of look at the world through the book? Yeah. I, one thing you talk about actually, uh, place is something that comes up in novels. Obviously it's also a huge part of travel writing, which I teach quite a bit. You talk about how you, you, you sit down in Arizona and you end up writing Michigan stories, right? Right. Um, and I think as you were talking about Hemingway's iceberg, the idea that there's so much of backstory that is beneath uh, the surface, you know, the, the idea that all of these emotional tensions aren't explained, but they are evoked through the characters, I immediately thought of research because so often um, to qualify oneself to write a travel story, you have to sort of know enough about a place to be able to throw it away and speak with authority about the parts of the place that you mm -hmm. do describe. Uh, and so why don't you talk about the Michiganness of of your prose and, and what happens? You, you were talking about um, science fiction, I believe. Um, how yeah. does place and setting inform your um, your writing? You know, a, a place like Detroit is in Michigan. It's not literally where you're from, I don't think. But you were you were sort of no. it was informing your story. So talk about that aspect of storytelling and of research and how those things intertwine. Yeah. You know, I, I tell the story in the book, but I, when I moved, I moved to Arizona eight years ago, I'd always lived in the Midwest and, and in Michigan. I went to school in Ohio, but I actually commuted from Michigan. So I was still living in, uh, always in Michigan. Um, I moved directly to Arizona from, uh, the upper peninsula from, yeah, I was, uh, 200 inches of snow and icebergs in the lake to June to, you know, 120 degrees in August in the summer. Um, it was 110 degree uh, temperature difference the day of my job interview from where I got on the plane and when I landed here. So like there's different of a landscape as you could end up in. Um, and the first year I was here, I, I struggled to write uh, to some extent. And I, I at some point realized I was not even kind of like dreaming or remembering things. And something about it was like the what different kind of weather and the sort of very uh, subtle seasons of Arizona um, and the different landscape was just like not triggering like my memories as it went through the year. Uh, I didn't have the same like progress of time that I was used to in, in the Midwest. Um, and I realized that I was in some ways like because I was not being triggered to remember things, I was having trouble imagining the way that, you know, half of your memory or imagination is your memories. Um, and I think it made me more of a Midwesterner to live in Arizona. You know, when I was younger, I thought um, stories happen somewhere else than where I was mm. from. Right. You know, and and at the same time, like it was really obvious, you know, my first novel takes place in like it's very pastoral in the woods and the sort of frontier kind of thing. My second novel takes place in Detroit, which I was finishing in Arizona. Um, my you know, my most recent novels is, is this thousand year science fiction novel. But a lot of it takes place in the Midwest and now some of it in the West. Um, and that landscape is really tied to my imagination, really tied to the kinds of things I'm thinking about. Even, uh, I think my first two novels both kind of end in winter, like winter is clearly when I think bad things happen, right? Hmm. Uh, there's sort of, uh, uh, these built in sort of things into the way my, my sort of mind works. Um, and yeah, so I think like it's, it's been interesting to sort of become more aware of that and to sort of write into it, uh, as opposed to maybe trying to avoid it. I think my, my earliest fiction took place almost in like blank spaces because I wasn't mm -hmm. writing about where I was from and I also hadn't been anywhere else. 
you know. Um, but I, I think my my travel also has informed my fiction quite a bit, um, including, you know, in the U.S. and overseas. Uh, I spent a couple of years teaching in, in Singapore and Hong Kong and Thailand and Taiwan in the summer for a couple of weeks every summer. Hmm. Um, and I know teaching there changed the way I looked at home and, and you know, gave me a, a different sort of perspective. Um, I think I, I may have said this already in this interview, but uh, I was in Iceland for, for work while I was writing Appleseed and Appleseed had some glacier travel in it. I got to hike a glacier with my wife over in Iceland and sort of get to visit these places you've been thinking about. Um, maybe it's kind of a reverse travel writing, like in some travel writing, you would go to a place and experience and then write about it. And I'm like, inventing something in my mind and then going to it, uh, which is maybe the opposite uh, way of thinking about it. But um, I don't know. I think a lot of what I do in fiction is try to create urgency for myself and for the characters and for the readers. And sometimes writing mm. about places that I love is, is, or, or is part of where the urgency comes from, um, especially in some of the like climate writing I'm doing, you know, to write about places that mean a lot to me that I don't want to see lost or don't want to see damaged even in fiction is where some of the energy of the book is coming from is, is sort of lived experience or travel research. I love that. Well, actually there's a whole genre of like Scandinavian noir novels. I haven't read any of them. Yeah. But they're, they're, they sell extraordinarily well. And I would imagine those long winter nights feed that genre and sort of uh -huh. make, <laughs> give them attention. And, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, permission to write about Nish, uh, Michigan. Um, I'm a Kansan. I think the playwright William Inge says he didn't really see Kansas until he moved to New York. He didn't feel like a Kansan until he moved to New York. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to to write about places we know well. Of course, uh, you know, through th the travel perspective, um, sometimes we're exploring liminality. We're exploring places we don't know right. too well. Um, You've actually talked about this too, that one one way to get unstuck is to sort of fact check. I don't know if you use the word fact check, but fact check your work to see what you're getting wrong factually about the world of your story. And that can, one, you can throw out the the, uh, the bad generalizations, but it's also a source of discovery. So uh, talk mm -hmm. about this aspect of research. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I mentioned my sort of research rule in the book, especially in the first draft, which is uh, I don't take a lot of notes um, when I'm like reading books for research, especially, uh, because it's very hard for me to take the kind of like, you know, the research paper in high school note, you might take on a note card and turn that into fiction later. Mm -hmm. So I try to use my research really as like prompts, you know, like if I see, so I read something or I see something in a, a video or something that I'm like, Oh, like I want to write about that. I don't let myself write it down unless I write it in the world of the book. Um, give it to a character as a piece of dialogue, use it to write a description, um, but really try to transform it into fiction first. Um, but I think, and this is again, that sort of like form of attention a book or a project has. Uh, there's always things in the research that wouldn't matter to you if you hadn't already been writing and thinking. Um, in my, my most recent novel, Appleseed, there's a, a retelling of the, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice sort of, you know, uh, threaded through the book and in all three timelines of the book, it appears in different ways. Um, and I, that started out in the book for, for like kind of a plot reason with another character. Um, but after I'd written a draft, it was like, okay, now I'm going to read like everything about Orpheus and Eurydice I can. And I, I sort of just retold it from memory, right? Like I, I didn't look it up when I was writing about it. And part of the novel is about, um, or part of the science fiction of the novel is about the like reprinting of uh, bodies, the sort of like 3D bioprinter kind of technology. Um, but it turned out that in ancient Greece, there were mystery cults around Orpheus that were about the transmigration of souls into new bodies and this sort of thing. I was like, oh, cool. Like I've already like found this like mythic bridge between like the science fiction and these sort of ideas I'm working on. And I didn't know it was going to be there. Um, in my first novel, there's a, uh, these novels sound so weird when you hear them in sections, they're, they're weird anyway, but, uh, there's a, uh, this giant sort of sentient bear that the, the protagonist deals with, um, who is also less sort of like mother figure in this novel about parenthood. Um, and there were all these sort of facts about bears and the way like bears, re uh, uh, how they, they give birth at the end of hibernation. So they're pregnant while they're hibernating and these sort of things ended up being like symbolically really correct for the book in the science that I didn't know when I was writing the book. Right. Um, and then I could go and turn things up and make them a little tighter or give them another piece of sort of real world resonance that just makes them feel a little more believable. Um, but it's really amazing how often you get 90% of something right 
because you're like a smart, interested, like intelligent person who is, you know, invested in the world. Uh, and then the 10% you get wrong is usually very wrong. And, <laughs> and you see hmm. some opportunities along the way. Um, but I, I'm surprised how much I see of my students too, how much they can like rough in like a historical period or something by just being imaginative. Um, and then of course you do get some things like massively wrong. Um, travel is trickier. The covering is probably trickier in many ways than fiction because you don't want to misrepresent somebody else's culture, right? Or misrepresent mm -hmm. somebody else's place. Um, so, you know, it's a different sort of task, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I find research to be almost all opportunity and the rule about not taking notes keeps me from doing only research and not writing. Which, which is key because uh, nonfiction right. writers in particular can just research. I, I've done this a, a million times. You write about right. travel writing, and I think a, a key thing of travel writing is 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 admitting your own point of view. You know, like sort of admitting mm -hmm. the limits of your understanding that you are this liminal world, and you're seeing this place in a fresh way, but maybe it's in a place that people who've lived there don't see anymore. Um, you have an interesting um, exercise. This is sort of an aside about experimenting with sections of prose by changing points of view. I think sometimes, mm. uh, oftentimes, if it, if it feels like a travel writer is avoiding something, I'll have them rewrite it in the third person to say he did this rather than I did this so that they can be a yeah. little bit meaner on themselves. How does this work, <laughs> in, how, how does this work in novel writing? How can, how can ex just sort of tweaking in those early drafts with point of view help you tell a better story? Yeah. I mean, I think the the same thing you're doing in the third person is part of the reason I'm mostly a novelist. Right. It's sort of I the little bit of like memoir kind of writing I've done. It's very, very hard for me to like totally get out of that, like thing where you're always the hero or the villain of mm. every story you tell, you know, or the hero or the victim of every story. Um, but novel writing does sort of short circuit that for me, which I think lets me get a little closer to my real emotions. Um, I think it's it's interesting. I mostly write fiction in the third person now, um, although my first novel's in first, and of course I've written stories in first person. Uh, but in every third person novel, there's been a place where the protagonist uh, or a character like speaks directly, you know, to the camera, uh, so to speak. Um, and they, you know, a monologue, a diary, uh, uh, a story they tell that gets its own chapter or something. And there's something really fascinating about a person you've only, this is the opposite of your, your travel writing exercise, a character you've only seen in the third person hmm. suddenly is like, I would like to speak directly for myself. And it's like, whoa, it's always really amazing, right? To sort of let a character to stop mediating the character with the third person, right? And to like, give them the stage. Um, I find really interesting. And of course, it's interesting to see from other characters' points of view. Um, one of the, this, God, this must happen writing stuff about yourself too. One of the things that is hardest for me about novel writing is, is especially when you have a single protagonist, is that the novel uh, accrues a kind of tunnel vision, right? Like the only things that are easy to get on the page are the things that that character would plausibly know or think or feel. Um, and expect the more complicated the thing you're writing about, the, the more you're leaving out by staying in that one perspective. Uh, and so I think a lot about the ways that like the, the book can be smarter than its protagonist, mm. you know, or the book can be more complex than the world the protagonist sees. Um, and, you know, sometimes that means writing from a different perspective. Sometimes it means including other kinds of material. The third person gives you a way to sort of, you know, vary distance and knowledge that lets you do some different things. Uh, but I'm always trying to both like create the best protagonist I can and I think see around them. Hmm. Um, and there must be a similar kind of tactic in first person, like admitting what you don't know, admitting, giving other people in the place you're writing about their own sort of agency on the page, right? That so that it's not just being driven by yourself. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I mean some, the classic of the memoir is like the "I hate my stepdad" memoir. You know, the right. the way to to exercise that is we'll write a draft from his point of view, and maybe yeah. you'll understand him a little bit better. You, when you mentioned. Um, you know, sort of n novels give yourself permission to write things. Um, I'm, I'm not a novelist, but um, I know that Graham Greene did novels and travel writing. And he was an above average travel writer, but a brilliant novelist. I think he could just sort uh -huh. of relax into fiction in a certain way that he didn't have to worry about analyzing himself. Um, and, and so it feels like, yeah, I guess I guess that's one advantage of the novel. A, di a disadvantage is that you're sort of world building, but an advantage is that you can be hard on yourself, or you can give yourself uh, you can have a perspective on yourself, or mm -hmm. like you say, actually, 
this, this just pops into my head, but how do you balance between the protagonist's point of view and then all the other characters? You know, you don't want to be too tight to that point of view. Um, you want to make a rich story, but you can't tell 20 stories in, in a story. So how do you ride that balance between sort of seeing the world through your protagonist versus understanding people who are not your protagonist? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it is giving them like real like space and agency on the page. You know, I mean, one of the, you know, if you, especially if you're writing the first person, when other characters are speaking in dialogue, it's often a place where they, they can push back against the perspective. Um, but I think uh, even just places where characters don't accept the story that the protagonist is telling themselves, mm. like um, uh, there's a, there's a quote in the book that I'm going to bobble a little bit, but I really love from Claire Vay Watkins where she talks about, like um, the what we need to know to know our characters is like the story they're telling themselves about who they are mm. and also their story. They're telling themselves about how they became that person. Right. Um, and we all have that sort of like this is how I see myself in the world. This is how I think why I'm doing what I'm doing. And this is why I'm right. Right. Because you wouldn't do it if we thought we were wrong. And when you butt up in the real world against a person who like does not believe your story, hmm. like it's always a moment of sort of confrontation, right? Where you sort of um, the thing that's not true about how you see yourself can become apparent. And I think the novel can obviously do that as well. Like, right, you put characters in, in places where their story does not work or, or someone else pushes back by or it's just not accepted. Um, and uh, and so that can be can be one way of doing it. Um, I also think one of the, the things that fiction does that nonfiction i mean sure can do because you can just choose to do this in your life but you have to experience a different way is um you know we we are mostly taught to be sort of uh non-confrontational and to not cause problems everywhere we go uh but in fiction the character who like causes a scene in the way we were told not to as kids is like really great like a character who says the thing that no one else would say or hmm. all those places where you write, I thought about saying, but didn't, or I thought about doing, but didn't in fiction, you can explore those things. You can, you can make, put those things in the page. Um, it's actually, I think a revision tactic of mine is to look for those places where I've held the character back from conflict. Um, and th that can be a really good way to explore the self as well, right. Or to explore other people is to make a fictional version that does the things that you would not in life. Uh, in grad school, the way I used to create protagonists who were different than me was as soon as I could, I would have them do something I would never do or make mm -hmm. a choice I would never make. And suddenly they were like a branch, right? They were like living their own life that was different than mine. They were very excited. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting place to sort of explore in that way. One thing you're talking about, like the narrative we hold for ourselves versus who we really uh, are, it feels like social media has allowed us to admit that more freely or at least identify it in other people <laughs> because, yeah. because humans have always had a story about themselves versus who they really are. But now we're literally performing all the time this this very manicured version of ourselves on Instagram or Twitter. Uh -huh. So it, it occurred to me that that might be easier for writers to do these days. Another thing that occurred to me when you were talking is that sometimes characters like – in, in screenwriting, there's what's called the loose cannon character. Like when you watch The Breakfast mm -hmm. Club, Bender um, is always saying outrageous things. He's always pushing the envelope, and that allows the other characters to react. Um, and so in a way, movies sometimes make a nice metaphor uh, yeah. for, for uh, how characters can interact with each other and how even characters who are not the protagonist can help um, – you know, stimulate things and, and, and incite things. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's this phrase, is, incite, is inciting incident, is that Aristotle or is that a newer phrase, inciting incident? Is it that might poetics? be that old. Yeah, I'm not 100% okay. sure, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you, you talk about, like, basically you need to think about time in your novel and the inciting incident needs to happen pretty soon. You know, if you have 50 pages of backstory right. and, and the reader isn't nervous about something, um, then, then you might need to think about moving that inciting incident up a little bit. And so keeping in mind, you know, in a novel is a world, there's very few novels where it's just one person there. You have this world of characters. Um, what is the importance of establishing the inciting incident and then creating all of these obstacles? Because sometimes I think we like our characters and we want to be nice to them when in fact the story requires that we, we put them through obstacles and challenges. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... 
I think one way I, I, I like to think about it is um, uh, Susan Neville has this great essay called Where's Iago, uh, where she talks about like novels beginning in a, in a status quo. There's something mm-hmm. like life has been this way. And if nothing happened, it might continue this way. But that there's something like false about the status quo. There's something that's not quite true. You know, and like in a postmodern way, like it will never really be true. But, you know, um, and there's also the sense that like the stasis of the status quo is like a kind of, of death. Like this character is not like living the real life. They're not having become the real self, um, but it's safe and it's good enough. Right. And certainly in real life, we all can recognize the parts of our life where like it's safe and it's good enough, but we feel like we are not where we really want to be or we're not really there. Uh, and so inciting incident exposes the, the sort of lie in the status quo, or it makes it untenable. Like it can't, you can't stay inside that thing now that it's happened. Um, and I, and I think I like that idea of like, you're being, you're living a life that is like, okay, that could go on for a long time, but this puts you into a a place of sort of like revelation or transformation or change. Um, and then the choices you make in that tell you how you end up. Um, and I, I think there's a really interesting thing in like a three act structure where the first act is like often the character reacting to that inciting incident. Something's Mm. happened and they're reacting to it. And then I think part of that break into act two is where the character starts to act. They're they're like, they're going to be proactive in the world. I'm going to go out and do this because of the inciting incident. And, uh, and it feels really important that the character choose that in a really clear way on the page. Um, the example I've been using a lot in, in lectures lately is, uh, uh, in Lord of the Rings, at the you know the beginning of it, Frodo's kind of put on the road by the Ring Race and by Gandalf and, and Aragorn and all these other people are moving him around. And at the end of Fellowship, when they get to like the Council of Rivendell, and Frodo says like I'll take the Ring to Mordor, that's the moment he becomes the hero, right? Mm. Um, and I think like that moment feels really important. Like the inciting incident like sets up the conditions in which this character can like choose to make their life or can choose to solve the problem. Um, and that's often like a squishy moment in a first draft. They just sort of like wander into it. And I think in revision, I'm looking for how to like make a person choose their own life, you know? Uh, and that seems like a really key sort of thing. Things happen to us and then we react to them. And then it's that choice to act out of it. That is like the really defining moment. I like the the metaphor of the three act, even though I, I don't write plays and I don't write screenplays very much. Same. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's actually it's it's everybody. People have seen more of the same movie than the same book, so it's a good metaphor when you're teaching yep. things. But then also, it's beginning, middle, end. Again, it's Aristotle's Poetics. It's basically you have to have all these aspects in place, and then we can look at each of those three aspects. And and you know, if the protagonist at at some point is not driving his or her own story, then that's something that you should think about. You, you talk about some strategies in the books that, that basically, at scene by scene, there's certain changes that can, ha- that can happen. It can, things can get better or worse or weird, which I like weird. Right. And there's different kinds of scenes. There's discovery scenes, complication scenes, uh, reversal scenes, and resolution scenes. And so I think this is, within those three acts, it's sort of a strategy for having um, a lot going on, having some some dramatic, keeping the reader a little bit nervous or engaged about what's happening. And so within these three acts, how I, I think you talk about these sometimes in the context of getting unstuck in your narrative. How do you employ mm-hmm. these strategies? Well, some of it is looking for like just ways to create difference. Um, I was just mm-hmm. talking with a, a friend yesterday. Uh, well, I was talking with Aaron Birch at, at Hobart sure, yeah. about... Um, uh, Another Michigan guy. Chris Bockelder's work. Another Michigan guy. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Bockelder's novel, The Throwback Special, which him and I both love, and you know, just occasionally text each other, excited about, even when we haven't been reading it. I just think it's a book that's on our minds a lot. Uh, and I, I talked to Chris one time, and he talked about like not being, uh, not being a good plot guy. He's like, I don't really know how to do plot. I can't really do it in my writing. He goes, but what I can do is tonal difference. And he's mm. like, uh, in a scene, I push mm. a tone as far as it will go. And then when it breaks, I try to move in the opposite direction or unopposite direction as strongly as possible. And I think that's like a, and so if you're doing something really funny or absurd, you push that all the way and then you do something really sad. Right. Or you sort of mm. so you're like making these sort of differences. So the reader's always experiencing new things. And I think there's a similar thing with all these other kinds of things. Uh, stories in which nothing change quickly become sort of hard to read. Um, 
one of, when I'm getting bored in a novel, I often skip forward 100 pages and see what they're talking about. And if the huh. characters are still talking about the exact same thing, I'm like, maybe I'm done with this one. Because um, hmm. there's, there's somehow it's like nothing's going to change in the next 100 pages. Um, and so I, I am always looking for that sort of like, how can you create sort of dynamism in the, in the draft? And I think in my early drafts, it's, they're usually a little flatter, right? It's taking me longer to do things. Um, scenes are doing one thing instead of doing two or three things. And so you're looking for those. Uh, but I will go through sometimes and just mark on the, you know, on the next to like scenes or next to paragraphs and just be like, is this, you know, even just pluses or minuses sometimes like, is this up, is this down? Like, and if nothing is, if everything is kind of on a straight line, then hmm. something's gone wrong. Right. Um, in theory, if there's a straight line for a long time, all that can go and you just like put the two things that are just skip to the next difference. Um, I really, really love the phrase of Jim Shepard where he talks about, uh, rate of revelation, which he just means the the pace at which you're learning new emotional information about your characters. I think in world building kind of driven stuff, there's a similar thing, like how much you're learning about the world at what pace and that we just constantly need to be like learning something new. Um, and some of that can be like, what are the clues in this mystery we're reading? But I think some of it, and I, I say this is probably the case in a travel narrative too, is like we want to see the character or the or the person narrating the book um, discovering and learning and becoming yeah. as they go. And one thing that you talk about in, in your book is the, is the idea that oftentimes you can see if you can cut the opening or last paragraph of a chapter and see if it still works. I think sometimes we, we overwrite, we overexplain things sometimes. Uh, so talk about this tendency and how to resist it when writing or rewriting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we talked at the beginning about discovery, and I think one of the things that I've, I've learned is that most of the explanation in the book can go and that usually you're expl a couple things, right? So one is like if the reader can't understand the scene without you explaining it to them, that means the scene doesn't work, right? But I think a lot of the explanation that's there is really almost like a captured version of me reading the book as I was writing it. It's my experience as a reader. So if a character does something and then I explain it, that's that's like me figuring it out for hmm. the first time. I'm like, oh, that's what that means or that's the implications of that. Um, and uh, the phrase I always use in, in class is like the reader does not want your logic. Like they want huh. to think through and figure things out for themselves. And so your explanation is like blocking their experience and you take it out. And that same, the reader will, will feel that, like, what does this mean? What does this dialogue imply? What does this action suggest? What does this clue mean? And they'll, they'll do all that work. Um, and I really think that the things you tell a, a reader, they agree with or don't. They go like, yes, life is like that, or no, it's not. But the things you, they figure out for themselves where they're reading your book or reading your travel narrative, and they go, well, this is how life is like. That's like a thing they invented for themselves. And so it means something to them. It's their revelation instead of your revelation. Um, my first novel, uh, when I, the draft I sent out to agents when I was looking for agents was 125,000 words long. The final draft is 63,000 words long. Um, wow. and, uh, so it's half the size. And I don't think there are really any like missing events. Uh, there's no, like the story is exactly the same in both store versions. Uh, but some general overwriting came out and then all of the explanation came out. It was, you know, like a weird, mysterious book and it was like explaining itself to the reader, which was really explaining stuff to me. And as soon as I got mm. rid of all that explanation, then there was something for the reader to do. Um, and I, I think about that a lot, that you're that you're telling the reader what things mean is blocking them from getting to be readers, really. Yeah, I, I think that actually. um I'm not sure which which kinds of scientists study things like narrative and memory, but if if one tells a story, a woman could, spent all day cooking a meal for her husband who she loved, and then the husband comes home and throws it against the wall, then people will in, invent a reason, right? right. People people right. will invent that connective tissue. It's it's how we understand things already. And actually, you you talk about how the reader does not want your logic. I often say the reader does not want your adverbs. You know, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that usually, and I'm I, I say that as someone who whose first drafts are just dripping with adverbs. That really adverbs right. are you're, you're you're sort of 
getting in the way of your reader. You're telling how something happens when, in fact, you know the, those verbs should do the work that the adverbs uh, are, are doing. Uh, you, you also talk about this, and this sort of connects to first draft ideas, the idea of writing the island, I think. And this is something mm. that comes up a lot of times in travel writing because you want to just write a chronological account of what happened, right? But only so many details are important. And so it was interesting when you were reading your book about how you encourage people in that first draft, don't worry about the chronology, but write the scenes that you that you feel, that, that you see. And then actually that connective tissue, by the time those scenes hold have form, the connective tissue is less interesting because the reader sort of intuits that connective tissue. I just paraphrase something that you can probably explain better. So talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think your explanation is great. You know, uh, the idea comes from a writer, Charlie Smith. And, and yeah, exactly. You said like writing the islands means writing the parts of the book you can see in your mind right now. Um, the way I often explain it is like, there's, there's, it's amazing to watch people light up when I talk about this to a live audience. Like there's one scene that's like the reason you're writing your book. There's some like, this is really, you know, you're writing a 300 page novel because you see the scene in your mind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and often what we do, especially if we've never written a novel before, is we try to write to that scene. Hmm. Uh, and people produce all this stuff that they're not as interested in as the scene they're trying to get to that they have not yet written. Um, and I think the writing the islands idea is like, put those scenes down right away. Those scenes probably contain conflict to contain character the revealing moments even if you think they're like the end of the book right like just put it on the page um you're going to revise it anyway so you can't ruin it uh and so you get it down on the page and then you can sort of see it and i think it makes other things possible writing that scene will always tell you some of the stuff that goes before and after it and i think it also makes room for like the next scene that interesting to come into your mind um and that's certainly the case for me that like having the parts i can see in the draft make room for other things to, to sort of show up. Um, I also think one of the, uh, the things that I just got done teaching a novel writing class, and this seems really present to me right now is the things that students think are like the end of their book are all the time, the end of act one or the end of act two, mm-hmm. not that, you know, so if they don't put it down on the page, they, they write 300 pages toward this thing that is often like the real beginning of the book, mm, right? Yeah. Um, or the real beginning of the main plot of the book, if it's like the end of Act 1 or something. Um, but getting it down the page and letting it sort of like resonate and building around it sometimes makes that sort of more, more apparent. Um, I think that happened in my first novel. The thing I thought was the end ended up being like the end of Act 2. And then I was like, whoa, there's more book after this, you know, um, which was really kind of exciting to find. Uh, but yeah, I think we, the thing we think is really exciting is often a, a, an originating moment, not an ending moment, but we write toward them instead of from them. I think that happens in nonfiction a lot because people are sure. writing toward what co- makes themselves uncomfortable. And so uh-huh. we learn all the background about the place they are and why they're there. And then suddenly they leave us with this uncomfortable moment. Um, and then your advice to the writer is, well, let's start there. You know, actually you've, you've written your way to right. the real start of the story. You talked about how you were retelling this aspects of the the Orpheus myth from memory, and you did a pretty good job of it. You also talk about when you redraft novels, not to go into your first draft, but to sort of rewrite from memory, you know, without using your old mm. sentences to rewrite that. Um, that that sounded intimidating, but logical to me. You know, that that seemed that seemed like good <laughs> advice. So so talk about that a little bit. Just the idea that once you're in a story, and maybe you've given some time between drafts, um, and you've rested on it, then mm-hmm. sort of you're you're retelling that story from memory, and maybe you're finding the the best parts of it that go beyond your sentence. How did you how did you find this strategy, and why is it important? Yeah, you know, I uh, I really didn't know how to revise a novel the first time I did it. It was just, you know, it was so big and and uh, and you get so much work. I mean, the first draft of my first novel was uh, was not great. Um, it was, imp- you know, like I loved it as like a thing I wanted to work on, but it was not like a thing someone should have to read. Um, and so I came up with this idea of sort of rewriting it or retyping it. And I and I right away kind of invented this rule that I think is like the whole game, which was that I did not allow myself to copy and paste. So I did look at the first draft, you know, um, but I, if I wanted to use something from it, I made myself retype it or rewrite it. Uh, and I, sort of out of the belief that I would copy and paste bad prose, but I wouldn't retype it. That, you know, retyping a boring scene is like miserable, right? You're just mm. like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm going to make it different. Um, and so I put a lot of pressure on it. 
And every every novel I've written, I've used less of the first draft in the next draft. Hmm. I think so. I, I, I maybe there's a point. Novel five, I'll just like it'll just go in a drawer and I'll move forward. Um, I mentioned Lauren Groff before, but I know Groff does that. She um, she writes a first draft by hand, puts it in a drawer, and then starts over the computer without ever looking at the first draft. Um, and I uh, admire that, and I think that seems like a really wise way to do it. Um, Amy Tan in an essay talked about the second draft being written in the in the voice of all that happened, so that like when you're the first draft, you're discovering what happened, and the second draft, you're writing with that discovery already done. Um, and that seems to be the thing I'm trying to to create there, um, not the kind of draft, the, the kind of prose where I'm discovering the story but the kind of prose where like the story is known and now I'm just getting it down. Um, and separating those two things seems really helpful for me. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, the rewriting is, is so the result is so good that I can't imagine sort of skipping it in my own process. Um, the, you know, I, I do revise as I go in a first draft, even though I'm going to, I know I'm going to redo it, but that's really a way of like rethinking, right. Or returning to things, reminding myself of them, I think. Uh, and then the second draft, I put a lot more pressure on, like getting each version of the the thing right. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know if this is the case for you, but one of the things I've I've sort of noticed over, especially over long projects, is the one of the hardest things to make good is the stuff that got written first, because <laughs> I wrote it with like the thinnest understanding of what the book was. Um, and so the total rewrite is partly a way of like starting over from all the knowledge of the book I have when by the time I got to the end of that first draft. Um, yeah, the, the initial stuff, which is always so promising or you wouldn't keep writing the book eventually feels pretty thin to me. Um, and so I, I want to write a new version of it with all the sort of ability of the voice and all the knowledge of the characters in the world that I have by the time I get to that point. Yeah. You talk about throwing away sections, uh, into, I think you call it a cut file. I've always called mine yeah. the, the graveyard file is you, sort of, <laughs> you sort of give yourself permission to take things out of the mix that you can always put them back in. I rarely yeah. put them back in the mix. Rarely, never. <laughs> yeah. And, and one thing you're, when you were talking about Amy Tan, it occurs to me that storytelling, it's very recent that, that storytelling is on a page by one person, you know, that storycraft is an right. old oral tradition where basically the guy who tells the the bewitching story around the campfire, um, he's telling it for the hundredth time, right? You know, that he sort of knows right. what works and what doesn't work. So in a way, a lot of the story craft that we come back to is is old human storytelling, and it's sort of tearing away the the, the fetishization of these early drafts or, or the muse telling you what to say and, and just... I just this realization that process has always been uh, how it is. Um, so have you always had this? Have you always given yourself permission to throw that stuff away? Or is that something you've had to work yourself into? Yeah, I, th I probably had to work myself into it. I think um, I mean, I see this with students. You must, too. Uh, when you've only written like one story, that story costs you so much to write. <laughs> the idea of like throwing it away seems impossible. Um you know, at this point, I, I published nine books. I uh, and I think I, I mean, whatever that adds up to in words is a ton. Uh, but I've also like I've probably thrown away a million words in the last ten years, right? You know, mm -hmm. you just sort of like there's more where those came from. Uh, making words is like not the hard part for me. I can type whenever I want, um, and I think that's made me uh, harder on what I what I keep, right? Like there's because I know I can do it again. I know I can write the scene again. Um, that the I don't know, like the sort of worry that there won't be any more if I get rid of it is not part of it. I do think a huge part of learning to revise is being willing to make something worse in order to make it better. Hmm. Um, and that takes, I, I sometimes think about this in like uh, sports metaphors, I guess, like, uh, like if there was something wrong with your pitch as your baseball pitcher, you might have to like, when you start focusing on your mechanics, your pitching gets worse for a little bit. Right. Um, but eventually you get to like the better pitch. Certainly as a runner, that's the case, like focusing on your, um, you know, like your gait or your cadence will make you like a slower, more awkward runner for a little while, but maybe you get to the better gait, right? Um, and I, I think there's something, certain, I've been trying to learn to play guitar, like my bad habits that I picked up at the beginning are in the way of me becoming a better player, right? Um, and so I think there's something similar in writing, like you have to be willing to break a story to make it better, but it will temporarily be worse, probably. Um, and that's something that really early writers, I think, have a hard time believing will ha will work out. 
I love the sports metaphors because in a way it is like exercise. And oftentimes some of my students who have been the most successful in the publishing world, I didn't, and I feel bad about this. I didn't identify it immediately identify them as, as geniuses, but they've done the work. They did the exercise. They basically, I I think everyone come, all students come to a craft class and they hear what the teacher says. Some listen better than others, but the people who can apply that or apply Mm -hmm. the the advice of, of several teachers and several craft books that actually that exercise feels more important than the actual conceptualization and understanding the exercise that your muscles don't get stronger by, you know, conceptualizing the repetitions right. on the weight bench. <laughs> they, they actually yes. get stronger by doing the repetitions on the weight bench. And, um, you know, we've, we're nearing the top of the hour and I'm, I'm sure that my, my audience has heard a lot of, I guess we're both sort of craft nerds when it comes to writing, but it's probably a lot. So what can we lead them, leave them with? I think a thing that's really important to me is like, none of the no no time you spent writing no time you spent creating no time you spend you know practicing anything is sort of wasted time that it all it all adds up it all makes you better like the the novels that i've i've written that didn't turn out like made me capable of writing the novels that did right um and i i maybe the last thing i'll say is uh, a lot of people don't start the things they really want to do because they think they're not ready to do them or, you know, like I'm, I'm not writing this book that I really want to write. because I'm not a good enough writer yet. And I think the real truth is like you become the writer who can write the book by writing the book. And there's almost no other way to do it. Um, and so whatever people are, you know, whether it's a book or some other kind of creative thing, whatever people listening want to be doing and they're not doing, you learn to do it by by attempting it. Um, and so you might as well give it a try and and, you know, pursue that sort of passion, because that's the thing that actually makes you become uh, the person you're trying to be. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Matt Bell's book, Refuse to Be Done, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.